0: Okay, Acts chapter 1. I, I want to bring out maybe four points out of this, this chapter. Um, the first one is that, of course, all the Bible is written by inspiration. Uh, God wrote these books that we're reading. But there was, I guess, what one could call a, the human element in, in the writing of it. When you read, let's say, the Gospel according to Matthew, This, I submit, was a transcript of the Gospel that Matthew normally preached. And so it's interesting that going through the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, you see such a huge emphasis upon the the weakness of the disciples. And don't forget, therefore, that the the people who were actually saying or teaching the, the Gospel of Matthew, well, for example, Matthew or the disciples... So what they're saying to their audience is look, we who are preaching to you were so weak we didn't understand we didn't believe right we got it wrong we were so blind to the obvious and it was on that basis that they were so successful because the more real the more credible so then they were not as it were showing themselves to be the, uh, the knight in shining armour with no chinks in that armour the uh, you know the the pastor with the uh, the smiley wife and the perfect children and uh, who, who's never done anything wrong and do as I say and live as uh, as I have lived no the leader of the early church was uh, was Peter and <laughs> it was quite clear from the, the gospel which the disciples preached that he himself was weak and had been so terribly weak and yet it was out of that weakness that he was made strong. Now when you come to the records of the resurrection, which was so crucial to the preaching of the early church, that you know Christ has risen, you see the weakness of the disciples all the way through. Jesus upbraids them for their slowness to understand, for their slowness to believe. You see this particularly in Mark 16, that they, they did not believe the women, they didn't really believe the angels, they thought they were dreaming, they thought even when they saw Jesus that he might be a ghost... And then Jesus says, go into all the world and tell the whole world that I have risen. And he who believes that will be saved. And he who does not believe that will be damned, condemned. And yet the context is quite clear that the disciples were those who had not believed. And so there was a humility in their witness. There was a credibility. There was a realness in them as preachers. And in our contact with this world, in our engagement with people, it is our weakness, it is our humanity that we have coped with in the, in the context of, of God's grace and God's salvation and his acceptance of us. It is that which is the, uh, the point of bridge building with the people with whom we engage. It's not as if we are just spouting out, doctrinal theological truth that if they want to accept it well they accept it No, it's all about relationship you, you know that that preaching the gospel is all about relationships with people and it's them seeing in us something of of the Lord and also seeing in us something of themselves people who don't Fully completely believe and live and respond to, to the gospel as they should, but people who say, "I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. Now this theme of the, the weakness of the disciples is continued here in, in Acts chapter one, and the point I want to to, to bring, bring out here is um, in verse twelve. Where we're told that Jesus ascends to heaven, and the angels appear and say, Why, verse 11, why, you men of Galilee, you standing looking up into heaven? The same Jesus that's been taken up from you shall so come in like manner. It's always as if they're being upgraded by the angels. What are you doing looking up into the sky? Look, he's going to come back. And verse 12, they returned unto Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Now I used to have the impression that Jesus sort of led the disciples up to the Mount of Olives and they stood there and he on the top of the mountain and he disappeared and there they were looking up into heaven and the angels came and said, don't worry, he's coming back. But reading this more sensitively, I see verse 11 there as a kind of a rebuke. Why are you standing looking up into heaven? Jesus is coming back. And they returned from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. But if you look at Luke 24, verse 50, you see that Jesus did not actually ascend from the Mount of Olives. Luke 24, verse 50, he led them out as far as to Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he blessed them, he was parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So where did he ascend from? Bethany or Mount of Olives? Well, Bethany is near the Mount of Olives, but it's not one and the same place. Jesus went to Bethany, it seems, to, to, I assume, to to the the family there, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, whom he loved and who he spent so much time with. And he blesses them. He lifts up his hands, and they would have seen the marks in the hands where he was crucified. He lifted up his hands it seems above his head, in other words the very uh, posture that he'd been in when he was crucified blessed them and then ascended up into heaven. Now this uh, could have happened in the yard of, of the house in, in, in Bethany, it, whatever it was, it was in Bethany. But then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Well, remember that Jesus often slept in the Mount of Olives that this was, if you like, his hangout, his kind of den, as it were. So, he ascended, and they go to the Mount of Olives, climb up the top of the Mount of Olives. Now, the similarities with Elijah being snatched away into heaven are very similar. And you remember, Elijah was snatched up, and it's sort of quite similar, he was received, it seems by angels, just as happened with, with Jesus, this cloud, presumably angels. Um, and people thought that he'd been snatched up, but that he'd come down on some, some mountain. And you might remember earlier with Elijah, when he's being searched for by Ahab, and he's met by one of Ahab's servants, and Elijah says, yeah, okay, tell Ahab that I'm around. He says, well, I don't know, um, I can tell Ahab that you're in such a place, but then you, you know, knowing you, you'll be snatched away and you'll be somewhere else. So when Elijah was snatched up into heaven, his disciples also went round thinking that he'd actually just disappeared for a bit but had been raptured, as it were, off somewhere else, but he was still on earth. And the similarities are so close that I suggest that's what happened to the disciples. They were in Bethany, and he ascended from Bethany. And they went running around thinking, oh, maybe he's just disappeared to the Mount of Olives. Go to the Mount of Olives, go to the top of the Mount of Olives, now he's not here. Where is he? They're looking up into heaven. Well, is he up there in the sky? And the angels come and say, look, why are you looking up into heaven? He's going to come back. Talking about his uh, second coming. So I think this is yet another tacit recognition by the, the author of Acts, uh, Luke, under inspiration that he's saying to his audience, look, we were so weak. We just didn't get it. And all the time, all through the accounts of the preaching of the early church, the authors, the inspired authors, but all the same the, the authors are bringing out the point that, look, we didn't really get it. But now we do. There's another example of that, I think, in verse... well, from verse 6 to verse 8, where they say to him, Lord, are you going to at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Well, he had been expounding to them for 40 days the things about the kingdom, uh, that he was going to go away and come again. And he would taught this earlier in his parables, and they still didn't get it. They were still expecting an immediate kingdom. And he says to them, verse 7, Well, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And when he says that, he's, uh, he's quoting, actually, from Daniel 2, verse 21 in the Septuagint, where we're told that God changes the times and the seasons. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, it's not for you to know the exact time, because it's actually movable, because God changes times and seasons, Daniel 2, 21. But he goes on to say, but you shall be my witnesses... Both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth. So they say, Are you going to? You know, when are you going to come back? When are you going to start the kingdom? Right now? And he says, Well, the times and seasons are variable. He's saying that through his allusion to Daniel two twenty one. But then he says, But go and preach the gospel into all the world. And again he's alluding there to his earlier teaching that the gospel of the kingdom must be preached into all the world and then the end shall come. In other words, the exact calendar date, if you wish, depends upon the preaching of the gospel. The quicker we take it into all the world so that the situation in in Revelation can can be fulfilled whereby when the Lord comes there are people from every tongue, dialect, language, ethnic group under heaven who have been redeemed in Christ once that is the case then he will come and we have to ask ourselves a question well is that the case at this time and we have to ask ourselves and what are we doing about it so Jesus is saying to them you want to know when the kingdom's going to come go and preach the gospel into all the world and then in allusion to his words and the Olivet Prophecy and then shall the end come so then The basic point to take from all this is that Jesus is preached by mortal, fallible human people like you and me. And it is on the basis of our weakness, it is on the basis of our not getting it, that we actually can connect with people. And, as I say, it is not a case of having perfect, beautiful, glossy resources and being able to speak well and all that kind of thing that will bring people to Christ you know this I believe from your own experience we've seen it here in our Bible Center here in in Riga in our Ecclesia that it is people who struggle with alcohol it's people who smoke cigarettes it's people who are broken people through divorce, through messed up lives who actually can go out and convert other people because the more real the more credible so that's, uh, that's one point that comes out to me from, uh, from Acts 1 the other point, uh, another point I'd like to make is in Acts 1 verse 1 the former treatise Luke says, and he's talking about the gospel of Luke the former treatise of Armado Theophilus concerning all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was received up Jesus in his ministry began to do and to teach things. And I think Luke's point is that the Lord Jesus is continuing to do that. And the Acts of the Apostles is an account, is a history of how Jesus in fact continued to do and to teach. Throughout Acts and the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is often referred to simply as the Lord. And We should never have the idea that the Lord Jesus is there in heaven, killing time, looking at his watch, looking at the calendar, until some day comes him to come back. And that he is, in that sense, not active. He is very, very active. I read through the New Testament once, looking at all the things that we are told that Jesus is now doing. And it's an impressive list. He is, 1 Corinthians 15, actively subduing all things unto himself. Matthew 18:20, where two or three are gathered together. He reveals himself in the midst. He has compassion right now, Hebrews 5, 2, upon those who are ignorant and those who are out of the way of life. Alluding really, I think, to Jesus as the good Samaritan, who has compassion upon the injured. He sees wounded people in life and he goes to them. It is the Lord who calls and invites people to his kingdom as he he showed in his parable of the laborers that he goes out into into the marketplace and grieves that he sees people standing idle and he tries to get them to work for him. The Lord receives us when we come to him, Romans 15 verse 7 he's the sower, sowing the word in people's hearts again Mark 4:27. he sows and he works day and night intending that seed after it's taken root he works in the lives of people at the end of Mark 16 we're told that the Lord worked with those who went out preaching the gospel it's him, Colossians 2, who builds us up it's him, two Corinthians three verse three, who writes on men's hearts, who personally gives grace and peace to people, who changes people from glory unto glory. Hebrews two eighteen, He succors us in our time of temptation. It's him two Thessalonians two who comforts our hearts and establishes our words and works. The letters of Revelation two and three, he is the one who walks amongst the ecclesiasts. It's he, 2 Corinthians 8, 21, who searches our motives. It's him, John fifteen, who washes and prunes the vine, the branches, which is us, so that they give more fruit. It's he in the letters in Revelation show it's him who chastens people so that they produce more fruit it 's him who gives space to repent it 's him who punishes the wicked now the Lord Jesus in acts is particularly presented as as active it 's him acts five thirty one who offers repentance to israel it 's him who 's presented as opening people 's hearts to the gospel acts sixteen verse fourteen guiding paul. Where he preached geographically acts two hundred and forty seven adding people to his church it 's him acts nine verse five who pricked saul 's conscience. and so Jesus began to do things and he continues to do that. In other words, there is a continuity between the Jesus whom we meet in the gospels and the Jesus who is now active. It's not that he was as he was then and now he is off the scene. He is actively involved in our lives. So then the Lord Jesus is not just a black box in our brain that we call Christ. He is a living person actively involved in your life and mine. Now as a teenager, I, I was baptized, but as a teenager I would have said, yeah, 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 sure, yeah. no, no one can argue I don't think with what I just said but it takes some time to really be converted to that reality that he is not a black box in your brain or mine and that when we pray to God, when we talk to Jesus, it's not one half of our brain talking to the other half of our brain that we call God or that we call Jesus we are in active relationship with him, and he is actively in our lives. So then, <clears throat> Jesus began in his ministry, as recorded in Luke's Gospel, he began to do things. continues doing them throughout Acts, he continues doing them in our, in our lives. He began to do things and to teach. In what sense did Jesus begin to teach? In the Gospels, because you could assume that, well, he gave us his teaching, it's written down by inspiration, and that's it. But he began to teach. The implication is he continues. But in what form, then, does Jesus continue to teach? I think in the sense that those who preach him, who teach in his name, are to be seen as him. The classic example I find is in Acts 13, verse 47, where Paul explains why he is going to preach to the Gentiles. And he says, we're going to do this because so the Lord, the Lord Jesus, has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles. And he's quoting there from the seven songs in Isaiah, where Jesus is the light of the world. And so Paul is saying, well, because Jesus is described as the light of the world, that therefore and thereby is a calling, a command to me, to us, to also go into the Gentile world. So then, we are him to this world. In that sense, he continues to teach and preach. It's been so truly said that the Lord Jesus has no other mouth, or hands, or eyes, or body, or legs in this world. Apart from you and me, because people don't really read the Bible. They certainly, most people don't encounter Jesus through the pages of the Bible. They encounter you and me. And we are to be Him to this world. That's why you read in, in Nahum, um, Blessed are the feet of Him who preaches the gospel of peace. But that's quoted in Romans with a slight flick, with a slight change. Blessed are the feet of them. Who preach the gospel of peace? Why the change in pronoun? Because we are him. He, his preaching, his feet as they run swiftly to preach the gospel of peace, are in fact your feet and mine. Now, this has huge implications because we are to be him to this world. And I mean, that's colossal. It's not that we become image conscious, worrying what image we cut, because there's no room for hypocrisy in this whole thing. The fact is that who you and I essentially are is what people see of him. Now, related to this is the other point I want to bring out, which is the way that the angels say in Acts 1, um, verse 11, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you see him go into heaven. I don't want to go into Greek grammar, but I suggest that when we, we read this same Jesus will so come in like manner, the like manner relates to him as a person. It doesn't mean that in the same way as he ascended up vertically into the sky so you will all be standing on the Mount of Olives and see him come back I think it's saying that Jesus, the same Jesus who who left is the same Jesus who is coming back in like manner, the like manner of person the like manner of Jesus Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever what this means then is that the Jesus who walked the streets and the lanes of Galilee and first century Palestine, the Jesus who had so much sensitivity, the Jesus who loved little children, the Jesus who had a special care, it seems, for women and the the oppressed and the mentally disturbed, that same Jesus is the one that's coming back. It's the same Jesus, who was clearly consumed with a passion for our salvation, who will come back. And yet we all read the Gospels, and we we, we are attracted, I think, to the whole ethos that you perceive of this man, Jesus. We, We like it. We like him. But then we think, oh, yeah, then there's Judgment Day. He's coming back, and I have to meet him. And the implication, I think, in, our <clears throat> in the weakness of our faith is that he is somehow going to be tough with me. We fear, almost, that day of judgment. I mean in our weak moments. We shouldn't, but I think in our weak moments we do. This same Jesus, in like manner, the same type and manner of person who ascended is the one who's coming back. The one who was so passionate for your salvation and mine Is the one who is going to come back. And the one we meet at Judgment Day is the same Jesus who met the woman caught in the act of uh, adultery or whatever uh, and said, You know, I I do not condemn you. The one who sought her salvation. This is a point I, I want to emphasize, and I'm sorry if I labor the point, but it needs to be emphasized and it is in fact emphasized in the the gospel records and Jesus himself, I think after his resurrection was at great pains to try to assure the disciples that in fact he was, although he had risen from the dead and was immortal, that in fact there was a huge continuity between who he had been as a mortal man and who he is now He says, John 20 verse 18, I'm going to my Father who is your Father and my God who is your God. That's not only a nail in the coffin of the Trinity, big time, uh, but more to the point, that shows his desire to comfort us that even in his resurrected glory, your God is my God. And he's alluding there to Ruth 1.16 in the Septuagint. In fact, he's quoting from it. And it's where Ruth is being urged to remain behind in in Moab uh, by by Naomi. And Ruth says, no, I'm coming with you. Uh, Where you lay your head down, I will lay my head down, because your God is my God. Why does Jesus allude to, to that? I think it's because he's sort of saying, well, okay, like Ruth was of a different nation to Naomi, Ruth was a Gentile, he's saying, okay, I am in that sense of a different people to you now. I've been resurrected and immortalized. But that doesn't essentially affect our relationship. I will stick with you through thick and thin, and my God is your God. Another odd thing in John 21, verse 5, where Jesus calls out to the uh, the disciples when they're fishing on the lake. Uh, In the AV, it says, Children, do you have any food? but children is a poor translation very poor and all the translations mess it up a bit this Greek uh, term paidion, it's uh, a colloquial slang almost kind of uh, term and, uh, yeah, you read the commentaries or any, any analytical commentary uh, and they all comment on this and say yeah, this is slang this dynamically translated would be guys fellows. hey guys, you got anything to eat? And the question is, why would the resurrected Son of God use slang? I mean, not a bad word or anything, but just slang. Like, guys, fellas, you blokes go uh, kind on of thing, do we? Why does he do this? And I think it's to assure them that, look here, I am still, in one sense, human, although I am resurrected, I, and I have you know, immortal nature, I'm still one of you. You can also see similarity in his terms of phrase that he uses before his resurrection, that is during his mortal life, and afterwards. For example, whom are you looking for in John? John 1, 38, he says, whom do you seek? When he's in the garden of Gethsemane and they come to arrest him, John 18, verse 4, he says, "Uh, who, who are you looking for? Whom do you seek? And after his resurrection, he says the same. In John 20, verse 15, he says to Mary, she thinks he's the gardener, he says, woman, who are you looking for? In those three cases, it's all the same, same, same words, same original words. It's as if John is making the point under inspiration that the same turns of phrase that he had in his mortal life continued afterwards and it's the same with the term follow me he uses that a lot during his ministry and he also uses it in John 21 uh, when he he says to, to, to Peter look follow me You can see it in his words to the the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He's using terms which he had used during his mortal life. Particularly, I think, when he's on the road to Emmaus and he's with the disciples, and he takes the bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives to them, and then suddenly, click, the lights go on. This is Jesus, and which he's gone. In what sense was he known to them in the breaking of bread? Well, by his body language. He took the bread, blessed it, broke, gave it to them. I mean, they'd seen him doing this twice with the two feeding miracles, and probably every time they kept Passover together, and particularly at the Last Supper, they had seen him do this. And he does it. Ah, that's Jesus. And they knew him. He was known of them in the breaking of bread, in the way that he did it. Because his body language before his resurrection, that is, in his mortal life and afterwards, was the same. Incidentally, just as a, en passant, Jesus, like any human being, grew up within a, a psychological matrix, and that matrix, of course, involved heavily his, uh, his mother. Because where do we pick up our turns of phrases from? Where do we pick up our body language? I mean, you get that from early childhood with, you, with your parents and that goes with you through life and in fact it's another story but uh, for another long winter's evening Uh, but if you look at his recorded words in Revelation 2 and 3 that is his words to the Ecclesiastes the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 there's quite a few similarities with the song of Mary and Mary's response to the angel uh, as recorded in in Luke 1 My point is that the influence that Mary had upon Jesus was eternal, is eternal, because who she trained him to be, I mean in a sort of human sort of sense, something of that remained in him after his resurrection and eternally. Now that's an encouragement in the whole business of raising children. Because you may think, well of course we all do think, this is a a tunnel that has no end. And what's, anyway, what's the point? The the point is that we have that huge influence upon those children and grandchildren. And we will be in God's kingdom. Um, Of course we shall be changed, but I personally will be saved, and you personally will be saved. And your characteristics and my characteristics will in that sense continue and in a sort of human level because otherwise in what sense will we be saved we will not just be turned into robots the Duncan who is here today with, as the sum total of all my experiences, influences that have been upon me that is who I am and I and you, we personally will be saved so the influence that we have upon the children and grandchildren that we raise this can go on eternally now, that's a profound thought. So then, Jesus, the Jesus who was, is the Jesus who is right now, with whom we have to do, and is the Jesus who will eternally be. And I think that's why one of the titles of Jesus was and is the Kingdom of God. You, you, this might be clearest there in, in Luke 17, when Jesus says that the Kingdom of God is amongst you. Don't go looking here, there, or everywhere. Look, Messiah has come. The Kingdom of God is among you. Uh, He's talking, of course, to to the Jews, and there he was with a crowd of Jews around him, and he says, uh, Pharisees, you know, his critics, and he says, look, the kingdom of God is right in the middle of you. I'm standing right here. Because the whole essence of God's future kingdom was revealed in the basic human personality of Jesus whilst he lived on this earth. And so that's because who he was is who he will eternally be. So it's not quite true to say that Jesus came as a a quiet little meek humble lamb and he's going to roar back as an angry lion. We read actually that the wrath he will have in the last day is the wrath of the lamb. Not the wrath of the lion, but the wrath of the lamb. A lamb like anger. So my point is that the Jesus who was is the Jesus who who will be and of course that is also true for us that who we essentially are is who we shall eternally be that's why Job talks about that a lot particularly in chapter 14 he says that if a tree is cut down it sprouts again as the same tree and he says that after his death he will also sprout again it's the same Hebrew word uh, at the resurrection so the resurrection is a sprouting again of who we were in one sense in this life Now, if we understand that who we are now is who we will eternally be, you know, I think that begs of us some of life's most crucial questions. Because personality, who we are, becomes paramount. To be spiritually minded becomes absolutely crucial. Because who we are today you know, is who we will eternally be. I know our nature shall be changed, and yes, I accept that we shall be changed. And what we shall hereafter be, I know is, is, is not exactly uh, revealed. But all the same, we as persons shall be saved. We will see Abraham, Isaac, in the kingdom of God, etc. So then, it's not a case of how successful you are in your business, in your relationships, or, or whatever, in your career, or whatever you're getting on with in your life. The bottom line is who you are. That is so utterly crucial. I mean, are we reading the Bible every day? Now, I don't say that Bible reading is going to save anybody of itself. But are we exposing ourselves to the influence of the Spirit? Are we changing because who we are now in one sense is who we will eternally be what influences are we subjecting ourselves to? reading a load of novels all the time? watching the telly all the time? lost in internet forums all the time? the influences that you ex- expose yourself to they, you know, they form personality and who you are is who you will eternally be. And as I say, Jesus is the, the great parade example. The, in, the sort of comfort and encouragement of that is that he right now, and in the future, knows exactly how we are. It's not that he kind of forgot what it's like to be human. Like you know, It, it amazes me how people are, after 20, 30 years actually forget how to hold a baby, even though they've had their own kids, they sort of forget that part of their life. Um, but Jesus isn't like that. That's why First Timothy two verse five and elsewhere calls Jesus right now the man, Christ Jesus, the man. You say, but why call him a man?" Because who he was and who he is now are not so unrelated. I think Hebrews 4.14 maybe has that in mind our great high priest who has passed through the heavens I think that's an allusion to what we just read in Acts 1 about the ascension It's as if he's encouraging us to see this great high priest Jesus who was here on the earth and ascended vertically through the sky, through the heavens and is now at God's right hand the simple point being that the Jesus that was here on earth is now in heaven so then it's not that Jesus was one person when he was on earth but he's going to turn another face when he comes back. That the, the compassion of Jesus who was consumed with a desire to save who was bled and died and sweated for us and made the final sacrifices he did even when his people he was supposed to be dying for were, were killing him uh, the, the Jews I mean and the disciples had run away and yet he kept on in his hope for their ultimate salvation. This is the same Jesus whom you and I shall meet. Now that is maybe hard for us to accept because we are so used to getting to know people or we think we do and then getting bitterly disappointed when they turn another face when we realize we only saw half of them or a part of them. Or they change. People change. And it's so common, actually, although we may not have reflected upon it. Uh, dashed expectations in people. This is a major human problem, human experience, that, that is absolutely major for us. And yet Jesus is not like that. And he will not be like that. So then, this same Jesus, who ascended up into heaven, shall so come in like manner. The same Jesus. And so therefore as we face, I suppose, the ultimate question that is in our minds, will I live forever in God's kingdom or will I not? We know for sure that we will meet Jesus. I don't doubt that, I have never doubted that, that I must come to him in judgment. And I don't think anyone of us here anyway can seriously doubt that. We have believed in him, we have been baptized into him, we have heard the gospel, we have believed into him. And uh, we will come before him. We will meet him. Every one of us. We'll meet Jesus. But the, the question that is so huge, so colossal, so huge that in fact we uh, it's the elephant in the room that we maybe pretend we don't see. But the huge question that subconsciously, 24-7 is there, is, and will I be accepted of him? And yet it in one sense is not a question. Because we have been accepted of him. He loves us. He is the sinner's friend, just as he was in his mortal life. Now, there are times when you face a reality that is so colossal, and it's so obvious that you don't see it. We live under the illusion of rationality that I don't drive over a red light. I don't cross the road when a car's coming, therefore I am rational. But this is an illusion. We are actually not like that. We may be in some, some ways, of course, but uh, we do not see the obvious. And uh, As I started off by saying, the whole attitude of the disciples to the resurrection of the Lord is an example of that. The simple, colossal fact is that he loves us, and he died for us, and we will be saved. And so, when we meet him, we will be accepted of him, because the Jesus whom we meet in the pages of the Gospels is the Jesus who is now active in our lives and whom we shall meet at the day of judgment there will not be any there will not be any turning another face that I actually, well I wasn't like that you see, actually I'm like this no the Jesus who condemns hypocrisy the the Jesus who condemns religious abuse, the the Jesus who is very clear, was very clear in the pages of the Gospels what he didn't like and what he couldn't hack is the same Jesus with whom we have to do and with whom we shall meet but that Jesus was also above all the sinner's friend who loved people who loved children, who loved people, and who so wanted to save people. And he so desperately wants to save you and me. And as I said, he is not. Sitting there in heaven, waiting for the calendar day to come, coming back to earth, um, sort of indifferently. He is passionate for us. Thank you.